0: Hi, welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Jessica Rowley and you're here listening to some of the conversations that myself and my co-host Dr. Emma Kennedy and Emily Crosby have had with guests from across the world about consultation in psychology. Myself and Emily are trainee educational psychologists at the Tavistock & Portman NHS Trust and Dr Emma Kennedy is Deputy Course Director and teaches the consultation module on the Doctorate in Educational Psychology course. The three of us have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions in consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to the episodes, and if you want any more information or are interested in being a guest with us, please feel free to get in touch. Hi, welcome to this episode of Conversations About Consultation. We are honored and privileged today to be speaking with Professor Antoinette Miranda from Ohio State University. Antoinette is a professor of school psychology in the Department of Educational Studies at Ohio State and has several research areas of interest and publications in these areas. These include thinking about effective interventions with at-risk children in urban settings, consultation services in urban settings, and the development of racial identity and its relationship to academic achievement. She's also been teaching cultural competence in school psychology practice to school psychology students, and it was really interesting to hear her talk more about this in this episode. We think this topic is so important and we hope you find the conversation as stimulating and enjoyable to listen to as we did to speak with Antoinette.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us um, this evening or this afternoon where you are in the States. Um, it would be really great to just hear about your, a bit more about yourself and your journey to becoming a school psychologist, what made you want to become a school psychologist and your all of your experiences to where you're at now.
2: Yeah, Sure. You know, I when I was an undergraduate major in psychology, and so this was seems like eons ago, it really was. um, uh, You know, I was really kind of thinking about what I wanted to do and was in a class and they talked about school psychology. And it was interesting, too, because at that time, industrial psychology was becoming really big. And I remember my whole decision was based on that. I didn't think I wanted to deal with business, but I wanted to work with kids. And so it just happened that I was a resident advisor and one of the other resident advisors was in the program. Um, I went to the University of Cincinnati, I did my undergraduate there, and she was in the graduate program and she said, you should apply. I think it's great. So, you know, it was kind of, sometimes I talk about my career being happenstance. And so this was one of those things where I said, sure, I really like staying down here at the University of Cincinnati, so I will apply. And so that's how I got into it. And it turns out that the University of Cincinnati School Psychology program um, was sort of before its time in that they were really teaching consultation when many school psych programs weren't. And so we had Michael Curtis, who um, was one of the big writers in consultation. He was the director of the program. And so I ended up having four courses in consultation, which is really unusual. So I had um, the consultation um, in two consultation courses in my, undergr- in my um, uh, master's program. And then at the doctoral level, they had sort of an advanced consultation and then they had a practicum. So I actually had a practicum at a school and that was really kind of my first uh, actually doing it. Cause you know, when you're studying it, it's like very abstract. And so I worked in a school for severe and profoundly disabled um, individuals. And it was like the best opportunity because Michael Curtis had actually trained the teachers in the problem solving model. So I was my first job and I ended up getting a job there. So when I was doing my dissertation I ended up working part-time there and it was great. My whole job was consultation. You have to understand this was in 1984, 85 when most people weren't doing this and so I was working with these teachers that had been trained in this model, and I would literally work with them, and they would identify the problem, would go get data. Like, I didn't have to beg them. They would get data. They would bring it back. We would develop an intervention, and then they would do progress monitoring, and we would have, like, these amazing graphs, and so it was just, um, it was just really lucky to be in a job where I got to see what this looks like and that it can actually work, and after that I went to New York City and worked, and so then that was completely different. You know, they didn't know anything about consultation, but I continued to use those skills in terms of kind of working with teachers. So I kind of used it informally, identifying students, at, you know, that had issues, trying to get them to do interventions. So that was really kind of my. Um, first uh, foray into it, and then I got the opportunity to come to Ohio State after doing three years in New York City public, and and I have to say that I worked in one of the most impoverished um, districts in New York City, and so it really laid the groundwork for what I wanted to do in academia, which was really how do I train educators to be able to work with culturally different individuals, and so that really ended up being kind of a thread, so I, I go to Ohio State, and they give me the opportunity to teach consultation, so I was thrilled about that, Um, And really um, kind of started looking at it, but my first times teaching it um, was really all theoretical. You know, we we didn't go into the schools. I didn't um, do, um, we didn't have real clients. It was just one semester or one quarter at that time. And so we did mock consultation sessions. So um, that's how we really started doing it. And um, as time went on, um, I found that um, I started kind of getting bored with it. Like I wasn't excited about the class. I wasn't, it just seemed kind of mundane. And um, we changed our program to have an urban specialty focus in 2000. Um, And we were able to add some courses and I added behavioral interventions. And I thought, why not get into this? I had developed a lot of relationships with schools and particularly Columbus City Schools, which was an urban district. And I thought, maybe I can set this up and pair them with teachers and have them be their own consultant. And when I did that, I had been also doing a lot of consultation um, training teams. And so, and I found myself becoming more excited about the course because what happened, I now had teachers that were telling me how they were struggling with the problem solving model. They were telling me how they were struggling with interventions, why they were struggling with getting data, And and so I found that I was able to go into class when I was doing all of these training of teams to come back into class and say to students, here's what you need to do when you're working with teachers. Here's the barriers they have. Here's the barriers you're gonna have. And I found that I slowly started revamping the course, which led to let's do a practicum piece that is a part of this. And um, I became much more engaged in it and really started thinking, particularly about how do I train students? Because I believe that interventions um, always didn't work because there was a diversity component, meaning the teachers didn't quite understand what students were dealing with. And so I kept trying to kind of influence that and having students when they write their conceptualization papers to think about how did diversity impact this? Um, and it was still really kind of hard, but at least I was, they had to start thinking about it. And the book um, that I ended up writing, um, I was at a National Association of School Psych, and there was a group that got together about consultation. And I'm sure you guys have read Sylvia Rosenfeld; She's my hero. Um, I love that she devoted her whole life to this work. And so they started having a conversation around, there was probably maybe about 15 of us and somebody said, well, I don't know how I can get my consultants, my, my students, to understand how diversity has to do with it. And I said, well, this is what I do. And um, I started really talking about it. And afterwards, Sylvia said, you need to write this up. You need to write a book because we don't have this. And, um, and that was really what I started thinking. And so those cases you read about were real cases. And so I said to students, I said, Do you think you have a case that has to do with diversity, whether it worked or it didn't? And students submitted their cases. And it was interesting because I did not plan this. One of the things you'll notice is that the cases where the teachers were culturally competent all had interventions that worked. And and so when I started looking at kind of putting these sections together, I realized that. And I said, oh my God, I, I did not pick it that way. It just happened. That all of them, and so it really made me think about does that make a difference in terms of teachers being able to kind of more effectively implement interventions, and so I've been teaching the course like this for well over 18 years, and um, the other thing that w- I will say is interesting is that a pattern emerged every year I taught the course, and there I only had about 12, maybe 15 students in it. And I, so my whole mantra at the beginning was that, I said, here, I've paired you with teachers. I I know some of these teachers, but I don't know all of these teachers and they all volunteered. But here's what I'm gonna tell you. Several of you are gonna have the dream teacher. That is gonna be the teacher that listens, that contributes, that gets the baseline data, that implements the intervention. And at the end of the semester, some of you are gonna have six weeks of beautiful data. I said, another group of you are gonna have teachers that look like they're gung ho. And as they get into it, they're gonna start to have excuses and they're gonna start to say, oh, I haven't been able to do this. I said, if a teacher tells you that their data is in their head, they are lying because there's no way they can keep the data in their head. And then I said, and then some of you are just gonna have teachers that even though they volunteer, they're gonna be shocked that they actually have to implement the intervention. And they're going to do stall tactic and you're going to be lucky if you have any data. What's been amazing to me is in this 18 years of teaching this class, this falls out almost exactly how I describe it. Um, and I, I, I don't understand. I guess it just mirrors what happens in the real world. Um, the last time I taught the class, I decided that I would go to a school and schools actually in my neighborhood. And I said, here's what I want to do. I want to do some sessions with you on the problem solving model and consultation and what you're going to be expecting. I will say that in doing that, I spent three sessions. So I gave them free professional development. Um, All of the teachers came and I really kind of laid out because even though I would give them a sheet about, here's what you need to expect inevitably, I would always have one teacher. That would say are you going to do the intervention and the students say no I'm consulting with you to do the intervention but in this one we probably had the most successful cases um, of any time that we've ever had and and so it goes back to something that I absolutely believe is that in order to be successful teachers have to understand how to do problem solving and implement interventions and I know this is, we're gonna be talking about some questions, but I think that was a very, probably in about, probably about 2000, I said to myself, I'm asking my students to do something with a group of people that don't know how to do it. And I wonder why they come out with good data. And as a result, I ended up um, teaching a lot of classes to schools. Um, in terms of teaching teachers how to do interventions and I became their consultant and I took them through this and there's a teacher that always is willing to volunteer as a consultant and I usually will tell that student you're going to have a great intervention and she has never failed me and part of it she attributes to she says I learned this when I took that class from you and you taught us how to do interventions so I have a couple of instances where I believe that this really makes a difference. And she's an extremely organized teacher. To be honest, she doesn't really need a consultant, but she does it to really help me out and to be able to work with the student. And and I tell the student, I said, this is gonna be your ideal situation because she's amazing and you'll see what it really looks like to do consultation. But out of this class of about 12, I think I've had about half of the interventions actually work and they had some really nice data. Um, So it's been probably the last 20 years of just learning of consulting and training that I've sort of really kind of come up with, what does it take to be able to be an effective um, consultant, and then more recently thinking about the whole diversity piece of how do you have to train students to be able to kind of get teachers where they need to be.
3: I mean it's. Unbelievably, I mean, it's the first time anybody that we've spoken to actually has brought up the point about training for the teacher or the consultee, Mm -hmm. uh, either prior to or as part of. And Mm -hmm. one thing that's going through my mind, Antonella, as you're speaking, is this sort of what can come back uh, to supervision, say, is, oh, there's a lot of resistance or, you know, the consultee doesn't really want to do this, quite reluctant Mm-hmm. And I guess what you're making me wonder about is there a danger that there has been a, a, a presupposition that the teacher is has all the knowledge yeah. and skill in problem solving, yeah. for example, knows and understands what their role is as a consultee. Mm-hmm.
2: Um
3: and, and perhaps we haven't quite worked that out as well as maybe we could have done.
2: Yeah, and I I actually absolutely agree. And I think that was the real challenge for me getting teachers to volunteer. And a lot of times they didn't really realize what they were volunteering for. You know, like, oh yeah, I'll do it. And I would say, oh, and I think the other thing was interesting. I tried to kind of build it as you are gonna learn this amazing skill and you're gonna have your own private consultant. And in the end, there would always be some teachers that would feel like they were doing a favor to the state. Other teachers did embrace it and say, oh my God, you know, I've had teachers to say, Remember when I partnered with your student, I still use that intervention. I think it's about how open and and sometimes the resistance comes from teachers realizing they're asking me to do something that I don't have a skill set for. And so how do I get out of it? Or, um, you know, um, not really understanding that you need to take data every day. You need to implement the intervention every day because when you're not consistent, you don't get good results. And so I think the thing I've been surprised about um, Emma Kate, thinking about this, I'm surprised at how much research has not really looked at this. So that when we looked at the consultation, I find that especially early on, very few people looked at the teacher part of it. You know, they look at the efficacy, can we do that? And I, my thing is, you know, sometimes I'll see and I'll say, I wish they talked about how much training they gave the teacher because I think that makes a difference. And, and that's what I think about at this school that I was fortunate enough to be in in my first job looking at Mike Curtis that came in and trained the whole staff they they had the language they had they knew they knew what I was talking about they had bought into it now they were special ed and and they did do a lot of behavioral interventions but you know I don't think they were doing it at the the, the extent that he was training them and I found that that really made my job so much easier and so you know the dilemma is where do the teachers get the training? How do we get them the training? And so I've done professional developments and and but you have to get teachers to overcome what they perceive as a skill set that they don't have. They have to be willing to embrace it and they have to also be willing to understand that we have to change the dialogue about interventions because interventions were, oh, that's what special ed does. And helping them understand, no, this is a general ed initiative. I think part of the problem is, which is interesting now that I'm the director of teacher, (laughs) the chair of teaching and learning, is how do we get teacher educators to train their students in this? That is equally as important as the pedagogy they're learning because we are asking them, at least here in America, to do interventions in the classroom that oftentimes they don't know how to do and their ideas of interventions are different. And so some students will say, oh, I'm going to have great because my teacher understands interventions like. And, and sure enough, their teacher's idea of interventions is very different. It's not the very structured way that we take them through that. So I think you're absolutely right. That's really what I found is that um, the teachers really don't have that skill set. And so in a way, when we're doing consultation, we're actually giving them a skill set which Back in the old consultation, I don't know if they still teach it today, that they would say consultation is not built for people that don't have a skill set. And yet, that's what we're actually doing with intervention. So, I really do try to train my students to think about how do you bring the teacher along um, and, and understand that they don't have that skill set. So, you're really trying to teach them a skill set as you're going along with consultation.
0: I think it's so interesting as well because it makes me think so much about how we work here or at least how I've kind of worked myself or perceived other EPs to work in in the places that I've worked in um the idea that we we're very passionate about empowering the Mm consultee, you know about empowering teachers and and whoever we're consulting with to kind of go away and feel like it's you know their their decision to implement these things or the recommendations that we Mm -hmm. give that they will feel a sense of empowerment to go away and do them and then I know that there's a lot of conversation around like but do teachers even look at the recommendations we we give them and actually I'm not sure we've bridged that gap between being like actually maybe teachers don't have the skills because I think we have a bit of a I don't know a dilemma between not wanting to give advice or you know making sure that we're not saying that teachers don't have the skills Um, and in a way that feels a bit sensitive to be like yeah maybe the teachers don't have the skills to go away and implement those interventions or it might be resource it might be time it might be other things as well Um, but yeah just reflecting on that I'm not sure I've thought about it in that way myself in in terms of thinking actually maybe I have a role in helping a teacher to learn skills that would help them or, or teaching assistants actually because I think a lot of the time for us when we're recommending interventions it might be a teaching assistant that, that does those um, mm-hmm. which often they haven't even had the training that a teacher has had um, right. or probably a whole other um, thing to think about but yeah it's so interesting listening to you and I wonder yeah whether that's that would be really difficult actually to approach with teachers whether you had any resistance from teachers in terms of like, no, I do have the skill set or anything like that?
2: I think some think they do. I think one of the things that we've done is that you'll notice in the chapters they have a script. And so we've really gone to like really laying the intervention out step by step by step in hopes of kind of giving them a blueprint. And that was something I think maybe. A couple maybe about 10 or 15 years ago that I started adding a script and we will get them to be able to do that and that has really helped. Um, And it's given the consultant to say, you know, have you followed this what what steps aren't you doing Um, and helping teachers understand about that the other thing. When I first started doing this, because I was having them do a behavioral intervention while I was teaching it, I used the intervention mystery motivator with all of them. And I discovered the mystery motivator can be a lot of different ways. And it's a pretty simple article. Uh, I've also provided that to teachers if they're willing to look at it. Um, So to get an idea of this is what this will look like to say, yes, this does work. Here's a good article that looks at it. And I found that it's kind of really digestible it's, you know, it's not a lot of jargony ish but I think sometimes that helps um, in them in terms of understanding it. The other thing you might wanna do that I've also done when I've not been able to give intensive PD is I'll just do one professional development to all the teachers and say, hey, let me just kind of tell you about the problem solving model. It doesn't, it's, it's still not enough, but at least sort of gets their mind thinking about interventions and why they should be doing them and how the consultant can help them do that. And I, I hear what you're saying about the advice because that's what we say consult, consultation isn't, it's not advice. Um, and we also talk about the non hierarchy relationship and, and the, the, the fine line is that there are teachers that are like, just tell me the intervention. you know, Because they don't have any idea about it. And so what I've tried to do is make sure they're involved as much as I can kind of give the intervention and the way I do it, I would say, you know, here's an intervention that you can use, think about whether you can actually incorporate this in your to your classroom. And then when we come back in the next session, let me know if this is doable. So while I may be giving them the intervention, I still give them the power to say, no, that's not possible. There's one teacher, she does this with us all the time. And it was kind of funny because I, I would tell the student, I said, well, you need to understand, she hates mystery motivator, even though it really does work. I don't know why. And she's gonna tell you that at the beginning. So please do not try to convince her to do mystery motivator. And without fail, she'll say, oh, by the way, I don't like mystery motivator and I do not wanna do it. And the student says, okay. Um, so it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. And I've never been able to understand why she does not like that intervention. But it was an important thing to say, don't try to convince her because, again, you want her to have the ball in her court to be able to make the decision about what kind of intervention does she want to use. Um, This was also a teacher that she has done this with me a number of times, but never had good data. And so I was Mm -hmm. determined that one of these days she's going to come out. And so the last time we used her, I think it was the first time that she actually carried an intervention out from beginning to end and actually had, I I say that to say that sometimes it takes a couple of tries. So even though she volunteered, even though she really understood the problem solving model, even though she had that, she had her own things that she had to work. Mm -hmm. And the student um, that was with her said, I'm determined that I'm gonna get data this time from her. And so um, she really kind of listened to her and she was able to to do that. So some teachers that happens right away. And I felt Mm -hmm. you teachers, have success, they're more likely to do interventions over and over again.
3: I mean, it's, yeah, just picking up on that point about something in the teacher that needs Mm -hmm. to be sort of acknowledged and and just accepted that it's there. It it does bring me back to that um, amazing chapter actually in the book about, um, is it something like what to do when the consultee views the child as the problem? Yes. Um, yeah, it's such a, I mean, I read the the chapter title, I just thought, this is it, this is going to be <laughs> the one I need to kind of really yeah. get to. And I think that one of the things I suppose that <clears throat> coming from some of the discussions that this Jess and M's training group had had is what happens when you are consulting around an individual child in their given context and actually the child has less of a difficulty or a problem, but mm-hmm. it is the system around the child that's pathologized their behavior, yeah. their development, their style of interacting, just like how they walk, how they talk, It, it it's, yeah, it's the dysfunction somehow sitting in the system mm-hmm. rather than in the client. And yet um, the, the consultee is ostensibly coming to you to, he- to help with that situation and say, oh, look, right. over there is the problem. I do, yeah, I don't yeah. know whether that's been something that you guys have encountered a little bit there. So
2: I will give you, this is a classic case. And um, this happened a couple of years ago. So we were in this school. I called this principal and said, hey, can we come in? And she said, yes. And she had some teachers. And one of my students that actually does ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, is really good at it. And so we take her to one classroom. Ka- classroom was absolute chaos, chaos. And I was like, you know, this is, this is the teacher you're gonna be working with. And so we go down to another class. And it was really interesting because the principal says, well, the teacher isn't here today. This is a substitute teacher. And I was like, really? The class was so well behaved. And I said, you would never know it. And she said, well, yeah, because this teacher is on point and her students know that they don't act up. So the student that was supposed to go with the teacher at chaos, she said, can I be in this classroom? And I said, no, you're going to be in this one. The interesting thing is that she did uh, the teacher would tell her she said you know I just think these kids have mental health problems it's primarily mostly um, minoritized kids she was in low SES and she said you know these kids just have mental health problems and so I said this and why don't you try a really simple intervention with her so they did a transition um, intervention and to get the kids to transition and within two days the kids were on point I was, you know, so I said to the student, I said, oh my God, this teacher must be so excited that this intervention works. She goes, well, actually, she said, um, this is only because you're bribing them. And, um, and I said, what? And she said, yeah, she goes, she, she couldn't believe. And I was like, oh my God. And it was another, it's sort of like what you were saying is that I thought that when she implemented this intervention and saw that the kids complied, and at the transition where at first it was taking like six minutes for them to line up, took them less than one minute that she would be bought and sold in to doing interventions instead. And so we had, I really talked to with a student and I said, well, think about this. Um, she, if, if, if it works, that means there's something wrong with her. It's something wrong with her classroom management. And so you may have to work with her a little bit more because what she is having a hard time I think accepting is that in two days, she was able to get these kids to comply. Um, The other interesting part is so the student kind of worked with her still. And so then she said the teachers uh, about a week or so later says, well, maybe I need to focus on this because the principal keeps coming in and telling me that there's something wrong with my classroom management. And I'm thinking, oh my God. So she has the principal telling her this And yet she really struggled. I thought we made a breakthrough because at the end when we were done, there were still about maybe four or five weeks left of school for the school. And the teacher said to the student, "Um, do you think you could come in and help me do some social skills training? So I felt like that was pretty amazing for her to ask the student to come in and the student said, yes, I'd be happy to do that. So I think for some, it takes a long time. and, And in this case, I thought it was I thought it was really a classic example of that. And I've seen some other ones where when the intervention works, sometimes the teacher will actually sabotage the intervention, but I think in part because they realize it's something about them, not the kids. And so it means that they need to change how they're operating in class because it may not be just always the kids. And so, um, so I, I, what I've been doing is having the consultants really think about that like why would a teacher sabotage, or why would a teacher stop an intervention that clearly is working and really kind of thinking about what are some of the things that they're saying that may lead you to sort of get the answer. And so part of that may be again, sort of stroking their ego. This is really great. Can we keep this going? Um, but it does mean to the teacher that they have to change something they're doing because it's not working. I want I want to keep asking you something here
3: but I, I it, again, I suppose it's, it's coming back to that issues that, that were raised last year, Jess and M um, is this point about well, what if, in, in this process of, of recognizing there's some degree of sabotage going on and inability mm-hmm. to be able to be truly professionally reflective on oneself to say, actually, hang on a second, what what am I bringing to this situation? Mm-hmm. And a continued, despite the provision of, you know, um, respectful, professional help giving and a, and a relationship where the consultant is really trying mm-hmm. uh, to, to work in that collaborative partnership together. Yeah. I guess one thing that has been, you know, and quite rightly raised is how to take up an anti-oppressive and anti-discriminatory practice when perhaps that sabotage is continuing this sort of within Mm -hmm. child deficit model um, and that's perpetrating kind of, you know, bias and stereotyping about whatever kind of dimensions of identity Mm -hmm. um, about the child or young person and I think that does feel like an issue that we haven't yet fully grasped as a, as a discipline is how does mm-hmm. one balance up that kind of being professionally helpful and in a, in a, consult, a consultation relationship whilst also able to challenge
2: mm-hmm. um, yeah. aspects
3: of practice that just really have gone beyond kind of the level of, um, yeah, where, where there is something that needs to be more firmly mm-hmm. Put, put across.
2: Yeah. And it's one of the things you'll notice in the chapters is I have the students um, reflect on if I wasn't a student, and I was a school psychologist. And because I think for students that are practicing this, you're in a kind of a precarious situation because you're not necessarily a professional and you're always thinking, I want to get this data, but I don't know if I can challenge them. And so that's another reflection I think is really important is to think about how would I as a school psychologist challenge some of this deficit thinking. And, um, and some of the things may be is that you go to, and, and here's another side part is that you go to your principal and say, as a school, we need to have some professional development on this. But I think um, as a school psychologist is sort of pointing out to the teachers saying, have you ever, has this ever occurred to you? Have you ever thought that this might be something? But I think really sort of challenging them and said, have you ever thought of this? And that's why it's important for this, the consultant to hear what the teacher says about the kid so that you can get your ideas. So when they say things like, you know, well, you know, the kind of home they come from, that's kind of a clue that you may have to do some different things about, you know, making sure they understand about this child and saying, yes. And this is where I think as uh, as school psychologists get this practice, and this is why the training is so important, because school psychologists, um, clinicians have to be willing to challenge. And so if you aren't there, you can't challenge. So you may say, that may be, but I don't really think it has any relevance to this case. You know, they're in the classroom, or that may be, but what we're doing here is to really try to help them be successful. Because- they may have these challenges at home, but it doesn't mean those challenges have to be here in school. And so I think, um, I think that's, you know, I think clinicians have to have the power and the, the strength and the uh, comfort level to be able to challenge teachers, but to also be able to point it out to them, you know, say that's not relevant to this case, we're trying to get them here. One of the other, I don't know if you've used this book, but Lost at School by, um, it's a great book and he actually has an update. And so he talks about consultation. So it is on consultation and he has this case that he weaves through the whole book. And I wish I could just pull the case out by itself Um, because in there, they do exactly this thing of looking at how you begin to change teachers' minds about kids. And so it's really kind of around behavioral interventions, but it's around consultation. He does a lot of stuff, but it's it's just a really great book to look at in the system. How do you begin to change the system? And um, the thing that I really liked about it was that it got teachers thinking that we are assuming that kids know how to behave. And in this case, it's a really great illustration of a kid didn't know. He had been vilified all his life in the family, in school, as being the bad one. So Mm. when it happened, you know, he just really internalized it. And so he couldn't figure out how to deal with some things. And so the psychologist gets the teacher the consultant gets a teacher to think about it and and they develop a behavioral, but it really was engaging the student. So a lot of times what I'll have in consultations, especially if kids can, is to engage them in the process because we learn students. And so it's a great one where the teacher wasn't there and they had a substitute, except that the substitute didn't know what they had developed between the teacher and the student and the student had not learned how to Um, generalize it to other situations. And so they had to step back again and talk about it. But it's a great book that you made Mm -hmm. because it fits with consultation. But he stories through there in terms of how he was able to get the teachers to change their mind about things. But here was the best way he would do it, I think, which is great. They would talk about things they would do and he'd say, well, how's that working for you? Because I don't think it is. And it makes the teacher... And the system program sort of stop in their tracks because we don't ask that. Teachers and principals keep doing the same thing. And he was just wonderful because he says, Well, how's that working for you? Because I think you're getting the same results and they're not the results you want. And that forces people to also say, Oh, wow, you're right. Maybe I need to change how I'm doing something. Please. Yeah,
3: um, it's such, a, it's such oh, a powerful question, isn't it? And sh- Again, mm-hmm. I suppose the benefit of um, challenge can come in the form of a question yes. and in the form of a curiosity about, well, tell us more about how is that working? And, you know, through that prompting, it doesn't always have to be... Um,
2: yeah.
3: Because I think sometimes, and I think you quite rightly, you know, identified that point about the difference between being in training and being a qualified practitioner mm-hmm. and issues around power and authority and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, the brilliant words about precariousness. It's it's mm-hmm. perhaps different. Um, yeah. But that challenge doesn't always have to be confrontation. It can be
2: right.
3: a, a kind of a question that stimulates pause Um, but the other thing I was thinking when you were talking Antoinette that I wanted to ask you about was one can only know to ask the question or to make the challenge if one has really understood what might be going on and and kind of understanding that there may be some bias or stereotyping Mm -hmm. or kind of deficit driven thinking happening and it linked for me a little bit about one of the other questions that we had for you was your research interest in racial identity,
2: mm, because I mm-hmm. think one
3: of the things that is becoming increasingly obvious and apparent is that white racial identity has received very little, if any, um, attention in 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 training programs and undergraduate psychology. It's not necessarily something that people come and know and understand, uh, regardless of your kind of ethnic or racial background each of us has a racial identity and one thing I guess we were wondering about is whether if you have come from the so-called norm or the major, where you know mm-hmm. the, well in this case a majority white country where English is the first and only kind of official language Yeah. Um, and a kind of a predominant kind of sense around sort of you know that weird psychology of you know western industrialized you know how you know, do white consultants in particular, maybe develop a good enough understanding of themselves and their mm-hmm. own racial identity, such that for if there were to be racial bias, for example, mm. that they, they've they really tried to think more about yeah. that on themselves. And I guess we were just really keen to hear a bit about just even generally your mm-hmm. work around racial identities, the link to kind of achievement. It's such a pertinent topic on a yeah. range of different levels.
2: Yeah, um, so there is the, the one really good chapter in there that sort of deals with it. Um, it's the chapter by Erin McClure. Um, she was my um, doctoral student and is now at um, uh, University of Missouri St. Louis, and um, and she and that chapter is really good because she grapples with a white identity. And she grapples with the fact that he identified with her as a white person and thought he could say the things he did and she grappled with the fact that she like it got so far into it that she didn't know how to confront him and so she you know really reflects on you know while i was trying to kind of build this report and oh we're sort of alike she was her her grappling was did i go too far because obviously he thought he could say these things about the kid because he thought I agreed. And so, you know, so one of the things she really grappled with that is as a psychologist and not being a student, if she was a consultant in here, she would stop him and say, these aren't appropriate. And, you know, and her warning was as soon as she got in the classroom, when he said something like, well, let me see what you can do with these kids. And he shared, you know, he had only um, student taught in a suburban area I think he might've been from a rural area. He he admitted, I don't connect with these kids. I don't understand these kids. And so I think, you know. and the thing about Erin is that she's really devoted much of her career to looking at diversity and doing all of these different kinds of things. Um, But I thought it was a really good one of how you're building the rapport with the teacher but recognizing that when teachers start saying things to you that may be inappropriate is because they also are saying, you agree with me. I'm saying these outrageous things to you because certainly you agree with me. And at that point you have to say, stop by, I hear you talking about the kids, but I don't see them. And it's really marginalizing them. And it'll let the teacher sort of step back. Now, whether they will, my hope is that they would continue with um, consultation. But I think some of the ways you can do it is to say, um, and I and we're gonna and I'm gonna work with you to show you how the how the kids you have in your classroom can do the things you want and they are not defined by these other things that you've shared. And so you're not vilifying them, but you're trying to let them understand. And I, I teach a diversity course the semester before they take this, so they've just had one where they're exploring their own identity, they're coming to terms with what because why? what whiteness means and trying to overcome those things. And then in consultation, they're beginning to figure out how do I identify something? How do I identify that this teacher may not be culturally competent? How, I, how do I listen to their words? How they describe kids, how they interact with kids. And so some of the ways that many, and so this took a while actually to use um, Colette Ingram's model to get them really to think through this. And so sometimes they would say, oh, well, diversity doesn't have to do with anything that I'm doing. And I said, so the kids are, are low SES, the kids are primor- primarily minority. So does the fact that um, they're coming from low SES environments. So then I pointed out to them and I think because oftentimes they're thinking the teacher is going to say something racist. That's how I know that diversity has a part of this. And I'm trying to get them to think much broader about it in terms of looking at food insecurity that kids may be coming with and how might that may be impacting the classroom. Um, the teachers that get it, what the students were like, they say things some, something like, um, I understand that these kids come from challenging backgrounds. And so a lot of times I really need to give them a break because they just need to have a moment to themselves. Or they say things like, "You know, I really understand the, the backgrounds that they come from. And so some of them don't have food. So in my drawer, they can always make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And so what happens, the teachers start to offer these things, these comments that also seem very natural that lets the student know they understand the population that they have. They understand you know, um, that, that they have some challenging environments, but the teacher also talks about, and here are some of the things I do. And so they may say like, so I try to bring things in from the community so they see themselves in the curriculum. And so that's how, so there may not be anything specifically with the intervention, but what they see is that the teacher is caring, and so they take a different approach um, with that. The other thing I found, um, I found that the more organized teachers are, the better they do with interventions as well. So, I mean, that probably is sort of has some logic to it, but um, I see that. But, But, you know, I think that's really important because a lot of times white students are coming to terms with their own white identity, trying to understand the kids that they're working with, but also saying, I wanna make sure I say the right thing. And so I say, sometimes you're gonna make mistakes, but I think if you're aware of it and, and, and look at where you're centering yourself, I think it can make a huge difference if you're, if you're, if you're aware of, of that information. But that awareness becomes really critical. And so I think in diversity, or even if you can do it in consultation, is having them have this self-awareness, think about yourself as entering this space and how different your lives are. And I try to get them, especially students that come from more privileged backgrounds to say, it may be hard for you. That's why you. That's why this is an advantage to talk to teachers, especially teachers that are informed, to think about what is the lives are for these kids without making stereotypes because I don't know, we have some of the things where we have kids in urban schools and you may have out of the 25, maybe 15 of them that have food insecurity, one parent home, um, just really challenges. But you may have another 10 that come from kind of working class backgrounds or sort of lower middle class that have two parents, that have plenty of clothes, that have plenty of food. So I also say, you gotta be careful that you aren't making assumptions. And so that's why you really gotta get to know the kids. Um, you may be aware of our opioid crisis. And so we were in a school that um, was a very uh, community school. Just see if she comes back, give her a minute. Yeah, so this is a school that I um, had most of my students in. Okay. And, um, and one of the challenges was that it went from being this very stable, um, you know, um, neighborhood school. Um, to where the opioid crisis was just running rampant. Um, parents in jail, parents that were dying, and the teachers really to deal with this. And so I see that as a, like a cultural thing that they had to grapple with um, this cultural element of opioid crisis that was overwhelmingly with it's really very bad in the rural white population. So this was a school that was predominantly white in an urban school district. Um, And it was just, and so it was very different than other schools. So it was different than schools on the East side that were predominantly African-American and maybe Latino. This was a school that was African-American and predominantly um, white kids. And it was just having such a negative effect. So we were trying to do consultation with helping them grapple with, we have a different we have the same kids, but their life circumstances are different and it's impacting what's happening in the classroom.
3: I mean, one one thing that has been coming up more frequently, particularly now is a sense here anyway, that um, teachers already have quite substantial roles as teachers, speech and language therapists, social workers, nurses, doctors, you know, the whole run of things. Um, in, in some schools and, and more some teachers than others, we, we would absolutely see that. But overlay COVID mm-hmm. on top of that. Um, yeah. I spoke to two, head, two brilliant head teachers on, on Wednesday and they were just saying, actually, everyone's talking about mm-hmm. going back to work or, you know, things are opening up a little bit more. Is an increasing rate of vaccination in, 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 in the UK. But they're feeling their response to COVID is only just going to be starting in terms of responding to the longer term consequences of what's been mm. happening to children whilst what's been going on has been going on and the impact of families and communities, again, disproportionately impacting mm-hmm. certain communities over others. Um, and within that, I guess one of the things that, you know, inevitably comes to the fore is how does one consult effectively with mm-hmm. a teacher who perhaps is already pretty full yeah. up um, of stuff, And and then now this new other thing is also there because I do wonder, Antoinette, sometimes whether it inhibits the consultant from being, um, you know, I was going to say pushy. I don't mean it that way, but but Mm. pushing enough, maybe because they're so aware of what's going on for the teacher. It's almost paralyzing and, and kind of bringing more of a stuckness to the consultation?
2: No, I agree. And that's one of the, you know, that's why I, one of the things I always tell my students is that you have to have the most simplistic intervention. This cannot take a lot of their time. And so, there's so, so there are certain ways you want to collect data, um, but it may be too time consuming. So you may have to compromise, you'll get the data, but there may have to be a compromise in terms of how you do that. Um, and so, in, in, in especially because many of my students have never been teachers. So they don't know what it's like. And so that's why I also try to get them just sit in a classroom. And I also try to get them to sit in a really good classroom with great classroom management and look what another one looks like. Because then they sort of get the challenge of why you may have trouble with one teacher and not with another one. Um, And I find that teachers, I also find, not always, but teachers that struggle don't wanna do consultation. So I had um, two sisters. One who always comes and does it with me. She's amazing. She's culturally competent. I mean, oh my God, if I could clone her, her sister is also in the school. And so you're thinking these are two sisters. She's not culturally competent. Her class is a hot mess, and you know everybody was trying to get her to do the consultation. And I remember we were kind of in the um, hallway. We were in the office. And so the teacher that's really good says, you know, that her sister says, well, I'm not doing that. This just takes too much time. And her sister, who doesn't really need the consultation but likes to work with students, says, well, I'm doing it and I'm going to have my consultant. And so people were all other teachers were trying to get this teacher to do it. Why? Because they knew she needed it. They knew she needed somebody to help her with the classroom management. And when she kept saying it was too time consuming, I said, well, I don't understand what part is time consuming. And it was the consultation part. To be honest, I don't think it was time consuming. I don't think she wanted to hear, I need to do something different in my classroom because I don't have good classroom management. Um, And so I think it's about just kind of finding your voice, but finding a way to gently, like a lot of times students will say, this is this student I work with. And I say, you have to do a classroom observation because I want you to verify that it's actually the student and not the classroom. And students will come back and they'll say, oh my gosh, she has no classroom management. So I said, okay, so let's walk through how you're going to go back to that teacher. Hey, I happen to look in your classroom and I actually think you can benefit from a classroom wide intervention and it will really help Joey. Nine times out of 10, we will convince the teacher to do a classroom um, intervention. And so that's one way to sort of Kind of get at the teacher having the real issue, not the kid, to try to do it classroom wide. But um, the, you know that whole diversity piece is is really challenging because sometimes teachers are not ready to hear and acknowledge that I have some work to do, and yet they're sitting in an urban school like they need to be able to think about that. Um, so yeah, that that that's really challenging. Um, and so I think, I, and again, I have the students think about if you were in a regular job and you were doing this, what are some things you would do? And so sometimes they'll come back with, I would go to the principal and say, hey, I noticed this with the teachers. Do you think we can have kind of a workshop kind of detailing and talking about some of these issues? So that's one way to do it. But COVID-19, I will tell you, we'll probably be writing about this for five years. Some people are gonna have wonderful research agendas connected to this. Um, But I I think we won't. I was being interviewed by our local newspaper and I said, I don't think we're going to really see the impact that of um, COVID-19 for about two years in the schools. I think it'll take us another two or three years to really see what shutting down schools for a year has really done to the learning of kids, especially for poor kids and minoritized kids.
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I was thinking, um, and bit internet when you were saying about certain um, consultees that it's a lot kind of easier to challenge those. Um, areas of diversity. And at the Tavistock, um, we are taught on the re- relational model of consultation mm-hmm. you know, really centred around that relationship. And then um, I think just from my own kind of practice as a trainee, I've really found that with some teachers I feel, or you know, parents, I feel a lot more able to kind of challenge those things. Mm-hmm. And it's all through that relationship. And I think it just really highlights that importance. Um, of the relationship but I was just wondering from your perspective you know as a trainer and all of your experience Mm. and with your students obviously it's a different context and how you know how do you support your students through that when perhaps the relationship isn't as strong and they don't feel like they can um, challenge as well I just think it'd be really mm-hmm. great for us to hear as trainees and other people who will be listening to this podcast yeah
2: you know I think about Erin and really helping her work through it because of course she was well into the relationship and she felt some way like she was saying that she was listening to him and becoming angry and trying to control her face and so you know one of the things I just walked her through and, and also said you know you're a novice consultant and you know, you need to take this away and learn from it. Um, and really kind of had her think about, you know, what would you do differently? How would you have approached this? Um, and, and telling her that, you know, I guess really to validate her feelings of really, um, feeling kind of blindsided in a way. Like, you know, I think as time went on, like he got worse and worse, and, and then she, it was her thing, like, oh my god, because he thinks that we have such a relationship and we're so much alike. And yet, in many ways, we're not because I think so differently about this. Um, and so I think it's just, I think it's just like one of those examples that she has that experience now to say, this is how I will do it differently. Um, I had one student, she kept quite the opposite. She had a, a black teacher and she was actually Latina. Um, and and um, I oftentimes, you know, talk about, you know, well, teachers, not work with you. And she really struggled with this teacher. And we came to believe that the black teacher felt like she didn't understand the kids and became very oppositional in terms of completing the intervention and helping her think through this. And she was, again, she was really angry because she's like, listen, I'm from a minoritized group. Okay, I look more white. And I think that's what happened. I think the black teacher saw her as white and not as Latina And, um, you know, and she was just really, and we, we, so we just kind of really worked through that and I just kind of supported her. I actually went and talked to the teacher and I, and I, you know, I just said, Hey, are you going to kind of complete this intervention or what are you going to do? And so, but it was again, a good lesson. The teacher really was passive aggressive in my estimation, but I do believe it had to do with the teacher was very pro-Black in the sense that only black people can work with black kids and really understand them and you don't know that. So I think um, helping the consultant work through that to understand what are some things you could have done differently.
3: No, you're speaking so much, I think, to the, the, like, you can't learn consultation unless you have a space to reflect. Yes. Like, it's just a bit pointless, really, actually. And not only the point that you were kind of making earlier on, Antoinette, you can't teach it in a dry, um, theoretical sense, you've got to actually do us and then have that space for reflection and noticing about what might be going on, what bits you, what bits them, how might you change it, what might you do differently? But I guess I'm also thinking about over here, um, there, in contrast to pretty much most of the other kind of human professions like social work, psychology, psychiatry, psychotherapy, teachers have relationships all day, every day with children and with parents, but are never provided with uh, supervision or, you know, like professional supervision in the way that we would understand it as perhaps as psychologists. And yet, I suppose, I wonder whether the the fact that they don't have us either in teacher training or as teachers as a standard right, like every other helping profession should have, is that part of the reason why, just like you mentioned before, Um, We don't train teachers in problem solving models. We don't really support them particularly well around knowledge and skills gaps in those ways to really benefit from consultation. Is there also a chance that by not ensuring or advocating for supervisory spaces for teachers also, that all of that feeling and emotion and and difficulty and, and lack of space to reflect if teachers don't have it, then perhaps some of what's going to get brought to consultation is that unprocessed stuff, basically.
2: Yeah, I agree. And especially if you have principals that don't um, kind of see that supervised, because you think about the teachers are just in their classroom. And honestly, when principals get some teachers, they don't really know how they view kids. They don't really know how they view minoritized kids. There's nothing you know, we don't do a very good job of, like, really helping them under, understand. And so I think it's also about how do we help people in those kind of positions maybe add that as a part of the supervision, add, actually have them going into the classroom and really examining. They kind of look at the teaching piece of it and not really looking at, you know, are you, do you, it's, you do, um, demonstrate bias to certain kids? And I, and I think there are some principles that are better at that. Um, and and saying that. So this was a very good principal. And so she had to, they were reorganizing her school. Interestingly enough, this, that young man was like, I'm I'm not going to go here. I'm not, I'm going to go find another job. And he reapplied. Of course, she didn't pick him. But I think it also speaks to that teachers, even though they're not a good fit, will stay in that, that classroom and in that school until they can get another job. Like, They don't leave because they can't go to another place. And so the kids end up getting the brunt of what they aren't going to do. And so my thing is, how do we begin to transform the teachers? Because that ends up being problematic for the students. That is kind of, you know, I think it is about really taking our consultation. We're just starting to kind of really write about that. Danny Newman's doing some stuff. And of course, Colette Ingram and a couple of other people. But it's kind of a messy space because how do, you, how do you use the consultant? I mean, how do we have examples where we say, no, that's not something you should be saying about the kids because we don't really train in that, but realizing that that may be something we have to do. And I think that's why I like Colette Ingram's model of the multicultural um, school consultation because it gives the different ways that students can kind of work through the diversity piece to see. And some of it may be like they're, you know, like some of them have come to the conclusion Teachers weren't trained in this, and that's why they're having struggle with this. And so one of the things we may need to do as a school is have some training around diversity in the kids that we have in our classroom. And so it at least gives you kind of a frame of reference where you understand they just don't have this. And there may be something in their background that doesn't allow them to be able to take that kind of perspective. And so our our kind of interesting because we're like dependent on other people having some of this knowledge and they don't, and you're like, but I'm trying to do this, but they have to have this, to be able to do it effectively.
3: Yeah, it's so, I mean, what's really interesting, I suppose as well, is that what happens when it's the other way round, with a yeah. hugely skillful, very culturally competent teacher, who really knows and understands their children, faced with a, a, a consultant who lacks self-knowledge, self-awareness, who doesn't quite get, like there is also, I suppose, the possibility mm-hmm. That we yeah, we have to kind of account for and allow for the fact that we may be shifting it the other way around and mm-hmm. having some quite um, ineffective consultancy
2: and how, how we guard against that. You know, I actually found because I don't know if you if the, these young ladies found this, but I always tell the students, I said the teachers aren't gonna see you as a student, they see you as their consultant. And I said, so get ready when you're like like a deer in the headlights, like I have no idea what to tell her. Um, and I think what's interesting, the consultant, I found they actually benefited from the teacher having that because in some ways they were able to do the strict consultation. They were able to do the problem solving and put it in place because they didn't have to convince the, t- like it was even better because the teacher had that knowledge And they were able to say, no, this intervention is not going to work because I need something that does this. And so I actually found that the consultants are able to walk away and learn a lot by saying, oh my God, I was able to actually do this a little bit easier because the teacher was there. And so that's kind of been my experience in that, um, that, that culturally competent teacher actually helps the whole consultation process run smoother.
3: Yeah, and I suppose it again comes back to this idea about the consultant being afforded the reflective space to notice yes. how capable the yes. teacher was and how much the teacher is bringing. And I think that mm-hmm. you know, without those two kind of components going yeah. together, it feels like we may set set kind of failure sort of up. I am mm-hmm. desperate to ask you about the the prison the school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm because it is such a pertinent kind of area of of thinking and concern, I think, here. And a a recent um, alumna of of the same training course that Jess and Emma are on, Dr. Rebecca Boyd, um, she has been rising more about the experiences of, I, I think it's Black young men, Yes. um and exclusions from school and mm-hmm. and a kind of more of an you know a burgeoning interest i think more generally about kind of you know we have a responsibility professionally mm-hmm. to recognize how we may be contributing um to racial disparity to racial inequality and to kind of systemic racism in terms of why are there overrepresentations in particular parts of the system particularly bits that psychologists have a role to play in so for example Sorry we have these um, specialist provision for social, emotional, mental health needs that used to be called emotional and behavioral difficulty schools. Mm-hmm. And you'd have a huge overrepresentation of um, black pupils in those schools, but they would not have ever been able to get a place in those schools mm-hmm. unless an EP had been somehow involved in the planning around that. Um, so it, I think it's something we really have to reckon with mm-hmm. and reckon with sooner rather than later. And given that you have had these students who've been looking into this and really kind mm-hmm. of trying to reflect on it, are there key messages that you would you know, signpost us to or want us to take away? Mm-hmm. Um, what can the consultant do in relation to that, that sort of
2: idea? Yeah. So one of the things is to use your consultation skills, but to go at a systems level. And so one of the things that, you know, so you think about you're doing the whole problem solving model, but you're just doing it at a systems level. And so one of the things I try to get students to think about doing, and even when I work with some other, um, like with principals, is to look at your data first. Look at your data to identify the problem. So take your skills and use it at a systems level. So for example, you know, I say that um, you're you're gonna look at the, the, the suspensions, the getting in trouble, do they have a pattern? Are they, do they tend to be more subjective? And so you're identifying the problem and then you're looking at, and then I had them look at, are they coming from more than one teacher? Like, is this a school pervasive problem or is this a problem with four or five teachers? Now you've identified that. And then you look at what is the infractions and are they reasonable? Or are they ones where we're targeting young boys, um, young black boys, because we don't understand. And then you start to think about what is our intervention gonna be? And so a lot of times the solution will be um, training teachers, making them aware of this, presenting the data to them and saying, here's what our solution is. So I take it as using all of your skills as a consultant and then doing um, really looking at it from a systems level and beginning to apply it because you can do it one teacher at a time, but if it's a systems problem, then you got to attack the system. And, um, you know, and I often say sometimes, you know, how we glorify data. If you pull the data out and you don't do anything about it, then the data doesn't matter, but you have to be able to present it. And, um, I worked with, uh, we do. We had our kids in this school, our students in this school all the time. This was an amazing principal that was looking at trauma-informed practices. And she was able to reduce her suspension rate um, and she moved it to doing in-school suspension, but she had the teachers begin to look at their infractions and that's exactly what they did. They looked at why were kids being sent to the office and then looked at teachers and saying, we have to find a different way um, to discipline, um, and so they started to embark on that. And when they did, they found that the suspensions reduced and we began to look at how do we engage these young black males in a different way so that they don't become you know, more problem behaviors. But a lot of times it was the frustration from the boys because the teachers didn't understand them or they sent them because they did this. That Making it a trauma-informed school was amazing. Um, I, when I first, when she first brought me in and consult, she said, when I get my own school, I'm going to bring you as, as a consultant. And I came in and we couldn't even meet without kids, just, just going nuts. And after four years, she, one day I was in there and she said, do you notice we've been in my office for an hour and I've not had one interruption. And that's how she was able to do it. She was able, that took it upon themselves to learn about trauma-informed practices. There was a couple of teachers. Mm-hmm. And that was really about how do you intervene differently? How do Thank you, you begin? to in um, looking at mental health and looking at social emotional learning and recognizing that these are some of the issues that um, make a difference. One of the other books I use a lot is Eric Jensen's, um, "How um, what poverty does to the brain or how to, um, mm-hmm. he has a couple mm-hmm. of them. And what I really like about it is that he has solutions. And so he really talks about, and, and when I've done this with teachers, it really has made an impact. And so, you know, you guys are familiar with the Castle website. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. SEL and um, and one of the things that um, when I present it, I say, "Where are your kids that have behavior problems?" And when I start to lay it out, they're like, "Oh yes," and it's those five castle things. But one of the things that Eric Jensen says that low income and he has brain stuff to shoot show it. He and it, it really has made an impact on teachers. As I say, he says that low income children come into schools with less of a repertoire of how to begin to deal with um, problem situations. So they only have like three things like, and so a lot of times it's fight or flight or it's the lash out. And so what he says is that you have to teach students. um, You have to teach them in social emotional learning. You have to teach them what are some alternative ways to be able to deal with that. And I found just doing that with teachers is amazing. And so some of the other ways I do with teachers to get them aware as I look at those five categories on um, SEL and when the kids have behavior problems, I say, where does your kid fit? And they'll say, oh, wow, you know, they have a lack of self-awareness. Well, let's do an intervention that sort of focuses on that. Let's think do things in your classroom that helps them have that. And I think that's helped them rather than saying, it's this kid, this kid is doing it on purpose. Yeah. It's gotten them to think differently about Maybe I need to give them more alternatives in their toolbox in terms so that they were, they can react to situations in more appropriate ways. I found that it's been very powerful because having worked in New York City, and they only have one or maybe two or three. And oftentimes those two or three may not be appropriate. That's the other part of that school to prison pipeline is how do we help kids have appropriate ways to deal with situations that may be challenging and how do they learn to generalize those um, mm-hmm of dealing with that. And that's kind of what Lost at School was about, was that he didn't have all of those things in his toolbox. So what did he do? He lashed out because that is the only way he knew how to do it. And so once they started giving him, let's find him doing this, let's find this other tool that you can use, his behavior began to change. Mm. It
3: speaks, though, hugely, Antoinette, to A, the value around systems working and having a capacity to flexibly switch between. Yeah, yeah, this case came to me on an individual basis, but actually what Mm -hmm. I'm noticing is So there's something of of that, but also about the really intelligent use of data, because I think you're Mm -hmm. right. People can kind of, oh, you know, it's another form or, you know, but what you're describing is a use of data that enables a way of being able to think yeah. that actually is leading to a, a really positive and potentially quite powerful outcome.
2: Yeah. Um,
3: and it's not collecting data for the sake of, of collecting it's data. data. <laughs> yeah, which I, And I think probably one of the other things that maybe helps possibly a little bit is it's slightly less personal. As mm-hmm. in, if you're looking at your suspension rates you, you mm-hmm. kind of the number is the number isn't it it's not necessarily yeah. saying and again that ability to be able to confront a person without necessarily having to use the words but yeah. even just saying let's look at this together mm-hmm. is there the yeah. chance then that that leads them to kind of go oh hang on a second yeah why is all of this happening a at this time of the day or b with that Mm -hmm. particular group of of young people or in relation to and and a really kind of potentially quite positively powerful way of addressing Mm -hmm. something that we do really need to get to grips
2: with Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. and this principle was amazing in that way
3: yeah, to be able to do that. I mean, I think that that point about moving towards tra- trauma-informed schools, it almost feels like here at the moment we have two sort of poles of a spectrum with some schools taking that very trauma, inf- very whole school approach and a mm-hmm. really like investing a huge amount of time, energy and training. You know, schools that say they lead from the heart or that they're very mm-hmm. relational, they don't yeah. have exclusions policy. And then on the other side, we've got schools where you're not allowed to speak when you walk around in the yeah. corridors or that you are not allowed to look at people in a particular, like it just feels like we've gone. Um, we have a lot of work I think maybe to do in terms of some of the more punitive um, behavior management, zero tolerance type approaches that aren't what happens if you're, if you're zero tolerance and you exclude a
2: people, where mm. is it that you think they're going? Um no. and what, I think there's an even bigger issue that you've sort of alluded to is the intent behind it. So we have a lot of that, especially with our, you may have heard about our charter schools. And what I say is there's this notion that, and and they're with minority kids, we have to control them. There is something wrong with them, something wrong with their behavior. And so we are going to put sort of a prison-like system in because that is the only way, and I hate the word control. So if somebody says, I say, let's use another word, because we're not here about controlling kids. Um, And But here's the thing I say, I say, yes, you can do that. But what happens when they leave that school and go to, especially elementary or middle, and go to high school? They don't know how to think for themselves because you have structured and controlled their environment. And my thing is, we are trying to teach kids how to behave and be a productive citizen so they can use this in other places. And um, that was that's like one of my biggest concerns is the rationale behind it, which is this notion we need to control kids because minority kids don't know how to behave. When in many respects, it's that you don't have good classroom management, you don't have a sense of belonging, you don't have the culture and climate in the school. That makes that where you're recognizing them. And so you put these other things in place. And I I think it's just a temporary solution. Some kids are going to learn that, but other kids are going to feel very repressed and oppressed. And they don't know. And I talked to many um, uh, school psychologists that were in public high schools where these kids went to charter schools and then they'll go to the public high school and they don't know how, they don't even know how to react because they're not used to being in an environment where you have freedom to say, I know how to behave and I know how to make good choices. And that's my thing is that we're not, we take the choice away from them. And we say, this is what you have to do. So to me, there are consequences later. um, But I agree with you, we have these two very um, different um, things. But I also think it's about why do they put it in place and so I think it's sort of I could talk to you all nice I am slightly
3: conscious that you might not have uh like the rest of the day to talk um one thing we do like to kind of ask people Antoinette just as we're kind of coming toward the end well a couple of things one is would you mind if we asked you to come back because we still feel like we've got oh yeah we would like to talk to you about but we're hoping as well that when we post the podcast, we will, uh, in within the training part of the institution anyway, there will be, um, you know, some of the key things that you've referred to, mm-hmm. like the work lost at school, like the stuff mm-hmm. around kind of the impact of food poverty, that we would hope to link some resources or materials. We'd yes. obviously be linking the book. So if somebody heard about a particular chapter, they could then go and read that. And then with the space for comments or questions. So that would be part of the reason yeah. uh, beyond my own selfishness of asking you to come back is if people had more that they wish to bring or, or to think up with you or to, to share with you. Sure, that we would love, sure. Love I would do, love yeah. to do that. Oh, fantastic. And then because you have already uh, completely spontaneously shared loads of fantastic <laughs> resources, which... Um, Em has found the uh, name of the man who wrote that book, which is really, really helpful. Um, Is there anything else that you would add, like one book or one article or one chapter? It doesn't have to be consultation specific or it doesn't have to be new, but is there something that you think, gosh, I wish on starting my journey as a, as a psychological consultant, I wish I'd read that, or I wish I had known about that at the beginning
2: We sort of have talked about this and it's a fairly, it's a dated article, but it's by two people that wrote um, a lot in consultation, Jane Close Conley and um, Terry Guckin, And it was called The Paradox of School Psychology. And essentially it says, and and I ran across this probably in the late 90s, and I think it divines so much of what you've been talking about um, today. And it really is that there's this dilemma, this paradox of that we're working to, to improve the lives of kids. But one of the things they say, we have to work with adults first to help the children in need. And in some ways, I see that is about consultation, but a lot more is that we're trying to change teachers' behavior. And sometimes I've heard principals say to, in, to teachers, um, this is not about the adults, it's about the children. And I think sometimes we forget that, and we get lost in that. So I, I've always, I have my students read this one a lot, um, um, that we have to really concentrate our attention and professional expertise on adults to get them to do the things we want for the children. And I think that's one of the interesting paradoxes. Like I said, you know, I went in this to work with kids, but in a lot of ways, we're trying to change the behavior of adults that are working with kids. Um, And I found that one, um, I think, um, really powerful. There's probably a lot of other ones. I will say that I lost at school and my students love that book, by the way. Um, And they have found it just really helpful because it's really consistent with everything you're teaching and consultation. The only other added piece he does is, let's bring the kid in on this. Let's see where the kid's perspective. And I found that a lot of my students have use that and then add it the the student into that discussion about how do we begin to make a difference and so i oftentimes tell people you know if we want to know how schools are let's ask kids we're we're coming from our adult viewpoints but oftentimes kids can teach us a lot and i think the case that runs through that book and there's a couple of other ones but there's a major case really illustrates understanding i tell my students that um Rapport to me is the first thing you can go in as an expert. To me, an expert is secondary. You have to establish the rapport, then people will listen to you. And that's about, you know, and sometimes I tell my students, I say, listen, the first session, you may not get to it. Don't, don't agonize over it. And the teacher may just be complaining to you and telling you their life story. And they do, they start talking about their divorce. And, and, you know, I said, so you don't want to give any, um, You don't wanna give any um, counseling to them, but sometimes teachers just need to listen. I said, but if you do that and you listen to them and you're empathetic to them, oftentimes you build that rapport that then you can get into the business later. Um, And so I say, so sometimes you may sort of hear that, teachers may cry in front of you. And I said, so building that referent power is so important. And then you add the expert power on. If you build the expert, like I'm an expert, I know everything. I think sometimes it turns people off, but the referent power is critically important. Then you can add the expert power in there.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm laughing because it sounds like Emma's teaching to us. <laughs> 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 and I think like a main key thing that I'm taking from this is thinking about the adults, and especially when we're talking about trauma informed, it's not just about the children, but also the adults. Oh. They're yes, and they tend to gravitate to working in these environments with these children, and mm-hmm. um, for that reason. So, trauma informs not just about the children and the individual child, yeah. but adults. So Emily, I
2: think that. that's so important that secondary trauma that we're talking about the teachers experience, and just how sometimes when they are working in these school settings, it's just gut wrenching, especially if you have a kid that has been killed. Um, or a parent has died and then just thinking what that does for teachers. And so one of the things we started doing is we started to do some wellness for teachers and we started to do like yoga, come in the morning. We, one of the most popular things is doing healthy eating and having them do recipes. Who would have thought, you know? Um, so we started, we started doing some wellness activities um, in the schools for teachers and just inviting them. Initially, a lot of teachers didn't come then it became a little bit more popular. And we started really kind of saying, well, what do you want? And so like doing yoga, like before school would we'll say, okay, we're going to meet 30 minutes before school starts. We'll do some yoga activities, um, distressing mindfulness. They did some things like that with teachers, found that really beneficial. So that's, again, as a consultant, how do you begin to get buy-in? These are some of the ways that you get buy-in that you're saying, oh, I'm, they're tending to my needs as well. They understand and I oftentimes, I do, a lot of times I say, I understand your job is tough. I understand you have some really tough kids, but here's what I'm here to do. I'm trying to, I'm trying to make that a little bit easier. Look, thank you, Antoinette. Phenomenally brilliant and such
3: a wide ranging and really interesting and bringing in. And like I say, there's a huge amount with all of this, the podcast, but definitely today of things that we just haven't thought about Mm -hmm. before we haven't connected up um in quite the same way so yeah it it, we're really really appreciative of of your time Mm -hmm. and and you sharing your expertise it's been really fantastic thank you very much